to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. We are here live at JP Morgan, uh, just at the conclusion of our digital brunch. And I have the luxury of speaking to uh, one of our esteemed speakers, uh, Chathan Perrick, who is the Associate Brand Director and Innovation uh, Portfolio Leader at PNG Ventures. Welcome, Chathan. Thank you. Um, I'm excited to talk to you because there are a few places on this earth, I would say, you know, McKinsey is one of them, but Procter & Gamble, it's a company that almost could double as a uh, higher education uh, institution because of the fact that a lot of people talk about P&G being this sort of marketing engine, right? And and a lot of the way modern consumer marketing gets done today is, is coming out of P&G. Um, you've been there for tw- 12 and a half years uh, in a number of different roles, and I think that probably has led to where you are today. We'll get to that. How different is the company today from the one you started as an assistant brand manager back in 2006? And that's an interesting question. Um, so I think I'd like to approach this in two parts. So first, what has not changed? Because I think it's equally important to touch on what has not changed. And, and then obviously lots of things have changed over this time. Uh, so I think what has not changed in pretty much its 180 plus years of existence is the focus on what we internally call as purpose, values, and principles. That really creates a set of norms by which we expect everyone at PNG to operate. Uh, and that creates a certain kind of cohesiveness from a culture perspective that is really, I think, responsible for the company being able to weather the many storms that it probably has been through uh, over the past you know, 187 years. Uh, so that's one thing that hasn't changed. The second thing that hasn't changed is the focus on people and leadership development, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, it's been an amazing ride thus far, uh, just going through the different assignments uh, and and look and admiring how at every level regardless of your function the focus is not only on delivering the business results but also on delivering the capability development of your own team and the third thing that hasn't changed really is the passion and focus on building brands having said that how you build brands has changed significantly uh, since 2006 incidentally 2006 is when iphone was introduced uh, first and here we are in 2019 in a world of kylie jenner and casper and all birds and hymns uh, and clearly the marketing toolkit the go-to-market approach has to change significantly uh, and it has changed largely uh, at png going from mass marketing to this exciting world of data and technology where as our cmo mark pitchard calls it you know it's really mass marketing at precision uh, and the tools that are available are helping us redefine how we do innovation, lean innovation, fast cycle testing, uh, A-B testing from a messaging perspective. In 2006, if I had a bright idea uh, about targeting Asians in New Jersey with a differentiated message, the amount of time it would take for me to plan and get all the retailers lined up behind it would be six to nine months if I'm lucky. 
uh, versus now you, you have tools to be able to very quickly test a message like that to figure out what type of response you get to then be able to adjust your marketing mix or your marketing plan or your go-to-market approach. So that's one thing that has hugely changed for the marketing toolkit. Uh, and the second thing is recognizing that we are in this world of emerging brands the need to double click a little bit more on consumer insights to truly get to the bottom of what is it that consumers want? What is it that they have? What is it that they don't have? How do they like to be talked? Uh, so a lot of focus on our core that we pride ourselves on, right? It's market research and being able to create these new categories behind foundational consumer insights. We have been forced to double click on that and go a layer deeper to truly, truly understand because that's really where we are finding that some of these startups are really winning uh, and uh, big companies like PNG are hurting as a consequence. Well, I love your answer and I have three quick responses to that. One, I've had the pleasure of interviewing folks, probably two others, Johnson & Johnson and Takeda, uh, Takeda, the broader company that have similar like histories. When you say 180 years, it's crazy to think of, especially when you're talking about startups, right? Some of which have not been around for 180 days or maybe 180 days. Um, the second is clearly you've been uh, media trained. I loved how you sort of took that. This is what hasn't changed and this is what has. So thank you for that very thoughtful answer. And um, the third piece is that uh, it is amazing to think about 2006. And so I, I worked at Fidelity Investments back in the day. And I remember, you know, the web was born I should say, yeah, the World Wide Web, sort of like early, um, early 90s, right? Late, late 80s, early 90s. And the fact that back then, the fact that it existed was amazing. And then fast forward to 2006, you're like, oh my gosh, the web has been around for you know, over 10 years and it's so mature. And you look back now and you think it was so immature and probably you'll look another 10 years ahead and think, wow, we didn't even know anything at this point, right? Um, so I, I like that particular insight. Speaking of, I do want to talk about your history. So during your tenure, the 12 and a half years that you've been there, you've covered a lot of different areas, right? So pharmaceuticals to oral care, skin care, uh, and now you're at this venture arm of P&G. How well did that prepare you for some of the things that you're doing? And I'm guessing probably a lot of your particular expertise is in this world of wellness and healthcare, um, since obviously there are a lot of things that P&G could be investing in. Yeah, so I think uh, it's been an amazing ride. Uh, the roles that I've had have sequentially built upon the knowledge to attain what I call as better sense making. So better sense making in terms of the business and what are the levers that drive the business, uh, what are the levers that drive people and organization, uh, and self levers. You know, as, as you go through these different assignments, you actually learn what your strengths are and where you need experts and what your weaknesses are. And that's equally important to calibrate to make sure that all three are in sync. Uh, and the assignments, again, that I've had have been phenomenal, ranging all the way from downstream on the Walmart team to be in the shoes of a retailer and how does a Walmart buyer think about the shoppers uh, to all the way upstream where you're thinking about connecting the technologies that we have with the consumer needs to then be able to figure out an innovation plan working with the R&D 
uh, and the Consumer Insights Organization. Because then you can take those two things and put that into my Olay role, which was really the PNL responsibility for North America business. Because now you understand not only how do those systems operate, how is innovation done, how is retail done, uh, and therefore be able to pull all those levers together uh, into creating the right go-to-market plan. So I think, again, everything has been uh, a very sequential, and you have to live through some of these experiences. Of course, you can read them in textbook, but you need to be able to create a media plan, for example, live through the consequences of having made those media choices, and at the end of the year, look back and say, oh my God, what worked, what did not work? Because again, that builds and helps with this sense-making aspect, which I think is so important. And bringing it back into the ventures world, it's a very new group at PNG. It's been around for less than three years. Uh, and unlike many of the other businesses, most of the other businesses that have been around for decades behind amazing brands, there is no playbook. Uh, this is really a, a few of uh, really smart people coming together, looking at the world around us to say, we need new sources of revenue what categories should we be playing in? And once you've identified those categories, how do you build an investment thesis in that particular category? Where do you focus and how do you go about doing that? There is no playbook and that's where some of these intangibles that you pick up along the way come into play because then they allow you to not only formulate a gut on how to approach this new category, but also be able to ask the right questions. And then once you're able to ask the right questions, seek the right expertise from within the organization or externally to be able to get answers to those questions. And thirdly, and most importantly, I think, be able to convert that complex message into something that's simple that you can sell internally to your management and get the right kind of resources and support behind it, uh, but also actionable enough to then be able to form the right team to then execute against that. So you know, it's been, again, a fascinating journey. Well, I'm going to ask you a tangential question because you've actually answered some of the guiding principles, which I appreciate. And if you want to add anything more, I don't want to leave that out. But this is part of you and I were joking in our prep where I said I, I try to listen to what the guest is saying. So I don't do that dumb thing of like, OK, tell me your guiding principles. And you're like, uh, I think I just told you a bunch. Um, do you ever collaborate or, or sort of compare notes with, let's say, like a Comcast Ventures or someone that might be in a non-competitive or less competitive space to sort of figure out like, where are there approaches that you can learn from? Because I'm sure there's an agility combined with the sort of legacy that you have that they don't have. And at the same time, uh, some of these companies or even traditional VCs or PE firms have been around for a long time. And they do have a me uh, methodology, but sometimes that's good. Sometimes maybe it gets a little bit stale because they haven't kind of rebooted from start. All the time. And I think that's really the beauty of being at conferences like this, where you get to meet like-minded people, where you get perspectives that you otherwise wouldn't have sitting at your desk doing Google search. Uh, so yes, we also have a formal advisory panel that's really uh, helping us think through some of our approaches. And we are constantly benchmarking. Uh, having said that, again, the world is moving so quickly. Uh, the the need that we have in terms of how do you build the new, how do you build new businesses, uh, given again th that there is no playbook, you have to formulate your own hypotheses. You have to try your own approaches, and if that doesn't work, you move on. Uh, so I think you know if you if you want me to touch uh, uh, briefly on guiding principles too, I think I can I can do that very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in 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 terms of what we do here at PG Ventures, because I think that would be very helpful to put the work in context, uh, which is really we are in service of entrepreneurs. 
partnering with them in unique ways to create new businesses in new markets. So we solely focus, unpacking that a little bit, we solely focus on new categories, uh, new business models, uh, and recognizing the fact that in this day and age, uh, really, if funding is all you want, you can probably get that because there's plenty of money. Uh, that's where we believe a company like P&G can bring things that many other people cannot bring to the table. Uh, and that's where we want to, once we identify a technology or an entrepreneur or a business model of interest, our very next step is to figure out how to partner with them so that we can bring our complementary ability to the table to really combine the two together, technology, for example, with marketing, consumer know-how, distribution, legal, regulatory resources, supply chain, manufacturing, so many things that a company like PNG can bring to really make sure that you can nurture that idea or that technology the right way and then be able to build sustainable businesses, big brands, uh, which is a very different approach versus the classic VC take on it where you have a finite time horizon and your primary motivator is the multiple and the return that you get. Not that that is not a, uh, there's nothing good or bad about it, it's just a different way of partnering from a very strategic perspective uh, to build unique relationships, unique long-term relationships with these startups. Well, that makes sense. And I know one of the things you are charged with, which you touched on, is building these billion-dollar brands and new verticals. Um, one of the things I would love to touch on, particularly as it's related to health, since that's your background, that's what we're here talking about. But, you know, any new verticals that you can speak about, because I'm sure there's some you have to hold back that you're particularly excited about. So I think I lead the uh, caregiving for the aging or the aging vertical. Uh, and I think that is extremely fertile vertical because there has been little to no innovation in that space. Uh, and everything that we have seen in that space is catered so much towards institutional care uh, that this particular consumer, along with their caregiving ecosystem, uh, has been left out of the equation. Uh, and this despite the fact that most adults will continue aging at home, uh, and there are a lot of older adults in this world. Uh, so again, recognizing the fact that there is a need, recognizing the, need, th recognizing the fact that uh, there are very few people focusing on this really gets us excited to say, can we, in this space, in, these, in this at-home space, create solutions that enable older adults to age how and where they want to age? So that's really exciting. Uh, a space that we have some really interesting experiments going on with uh, a few startups that unfortunately, uh, or hopefully I'll be able to tell them, uh, tell you about that uh, in the next few months. Uh, but again, there are some amazing, amazing technologies out there, Aaron, uh, that if we can tap into, if we can identify, which honestly has been the challenge, right, is this world of scouting, uh, is where do you fish and how do you get the fish to come to you uh, to then be able to make that connection and then put our know-how and expertise behind it to create something amazing. Well, it's great. And I think I would love to lean on you a little bit further because, you know, we are here uh, at JP Morgan and we did the digital health panel and you did speak on the one about aging. Um, add a little bit more context as to the discussion you all had. And, and it did seem like there was a lot of agreement and a lot of excitement about this very area of exploring and helping people age the way they want and, and how they want, ideally in the comfort of their own house or at least in you know, fairly comfortable uh, surroundings. I think it was an amazing panel, you know, talking to, with uh, Wen and Ashima. Uh, and really the key that came out is the role of technology.
and how can technology enable successful thriving in an in-home setting uh, without it turning into something that is uh, scary, uh, without it turning into something that is uh, a, a cop watching over you uh, or intrusive, because that's what uh, a lot of the manifestations of technologies that I have seen thus far in the category are. Uh, but that's where it's amazing the type of work that, for example, Google Cloud is doing on leveraging some of their technology and the reach and scale that they have uh, to create this invisible technology layer that enables without intruding. And I think that to me was the biggest takeaway of the panel. Yeah, and it's interesting because I, I remember one of you, it might have been you, that mentioned the sensors and just, you know, people not wanting to feel like they're in a police state. And I do know that, you know, there are companies that, um, like Google's life sciences arm, we've had just mega uh, from Verily, you know, she was on the, sh on the podcast show back probably early last year. And one of the things she talked about was basically taking the exhaust data off of devices that, you know, whether it's an electric toothbrush or other things that maybe people aren't normally studying. And particularly as you think about the aging population, being able to, to take that and use that data and not have people feel like they're in a police state. That's right. I do like to ask smart folks like yourself, you know, about the future of healthcare, particularly like that five to 10 year window. Um, we talked to Marcus Osborne from Walmart earlier and, you know, he had some interesting uh, points about that, but I'd love to get your take on, you know, what you see five to 10 years out. Yeah. So I think over the, f over the next five years, I continue seeing this whole trend of personalization take a much firmer hold. Uh, clearly there are promises that will stay promises, but then there will be promises that will materialize themselves uh, meaningfully uh, to help all of us, regardless of our age and regardless of where we are in our healthcare journey. Uh, I think personalization will also reveal what truly is the role of technology uh, and how can technology enable us again without uh, turning into an impediment. So I think I continue to see that gaining steam. Uh, and over a longer horizon, over a 10-year horizon, uh, I think there is going to be a very interesting convergence between the various healthcare and medical systems around the world. Uh, purely from a healthcare, uh, from a medical systems perspective, uh, you know, the whole idea of Eastern medicine and systems from India and China, for example, combined with Western, and I know this is not a new thing and there have been various efforts, but the way in which I see them coming together uh, is going to be pretty rapid uh, over the next 10 years, creating some very interesting opportunities, at least in the world of prevention uh, and in the world of democratizing healthcare while, as I call as high medicine, H-I-G-H, high medicine, uh, that is to do with, you know, uh, extreme disease states and curing of diseases that will continue to benefit from technology. So I see this very interesting uh, divergence in a way of where we go to for our everyday and prevention and where we gravitate towards for our acute needs. So I think that's the trend that I see over the next well, I like that. And I don't think I've ever heard of anyone talk about that synthesis, not to say that they haven't, um, particularly around the Eastern medicine, because I do believe that, you know, there is this sort of wellness and, and overall state of mind and, you know, things that we've been practicing as a humankind for five, 10, 20,000 years that I think sometimes get ignored. And it's funny to think, you know, 
I'd argue that we were probably in a better place from a healthcare perspective a thousand years ago than we probably were 200 years ago, where we were somewhat back in the dark ages, right? And then obviously have made great strides. Um, well, anyway, thank you for, um, for doing that. And uh, this is where we get into the more personal fun questions. And so I want to ask you a little bit about something that um, maybe people don't know about you that you're willing to share with the audience. Sure. I think I was thinking about this uh, earlier today, and I think one of the hacks, I'd love to share a podcast-based hack that has worked dramatically well in my life, uh, and also the power of reframing, uh, which is that, you know, obviously, just like everyone else, I want to work out every day, but I don't work out every day. Uh, and over the past year, uh, and, and again, you know, the number of podcasts and the how interesting they are has just exploded. And that's just fascinating. Uh, and I've actually almost tagged upon that idea of wanting to listen to as many podcasts as possible by reframing my workout time as podcast listening time. I don't want to miss the weekly podcast. And in order to not do that, workout then turns into this little incidental activity that happens in parallel. And again, this is by no means has transformed me from working out twice a month to working out six days a week. Uh, but, you know, it has dramatically improved the number of times that I do force myself to do physical activity. Uh, so that's that's a little bit of a, a, a personal hack that has seemed to work really well for me. Well, it's a good one, and I think you also shared beforehand that you listen to them at one and a half to two times the speed so you can get in all that more content. Uh, and it forces you to pay attention. It forces you to pay attention, which, by the way, I have a point which I think reinforces what you're saying. I bought a Peloton bike about a month and a half ago, and I was intrigued because everyone raved about it, and I hate riding on a bike, and I hate being on treadmills. I don't mind running, but I sort of had stopped that a while back. What I've noticed that's the brilliance is instead of focusing on calories and instead of focusing on the duration of how long you're on the bike, you focus on the instructor and they have a lot of broken up little sort of individual sprints and recoveries. So it's that same attention of I'm talking you through, now we're going to do this, this is what we're going to do. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I just exercised for 30 minutes or 45 minutes and I'm now sweating like a pig. So I like that. It's like I hadn't noticed really, but it's that distraction, right? That focus away from how long have I been doing it for and what are the calories that I've been burning. So that's Do what one. you want to do while slipping in something else. Exactly. It can be, fun is probably a stretch, but it can be rewarding Absolutely. in different ways than you're used to. Um, any books that you've read in the last uh, year or two you'd like to share or listen to, since you're a listener to, or a podcast that you'd like to share with the audience? Sure. Uh, so I do read a lot. Uh, at any time, I have four to five books that I'm reading. I'm notorious at not finishing most of those books. Uh, but I think one genre that has really captivated me over the last year is biographies. Uh, and there are two that come to mind that uh, I just absolutely love, both by Walter Isaacson, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, and Ben Franklin. And the reason why I love them so much is just this whole idea of the capacity of human mind and what happens if you unlock the capacity of human mind. Uh, and, you know, Walter Isaacson obviously writes an amazing uh, stories, so, so it's really captivating. But beyond that, just the number of fields that these guys dabbled into and the impact that they had behind the sheer power of curiosity and observation and perseverance is just fascinating. Uh, so I think those two, uh, and talking about you know, perseverance and really questioning sacrosanct assumptions. I think the third one that I'd like to slip in is Sapiens uh, by uh, Yuval 
Noah Harari, uh, which I think made me think the most. It was the most thought-provoking book I've read in the last two to three years. Well, those are great choices, and I don't necessarily always... I always probably tell people that they're great choices, but some are probably greater than others, right? Like Animal Farm. Um, my friend Jeremiah Ouyang, who I had on the show, picked Sapiens as one of his books. And so I definitely have to check that out now. And then the other two, um, I think Da Vinci and Ben Franklin are two of the most interesting people in history. And so I really like that. And then I'll just make as a side note, I guarantee you won't hear this on the podcast, but I know you're probably like, I hope this doesn't get picked up. We hear Tinkerbell flying around in the background because we get kicked out of our room. We're sitting in the kitchen sort of, you know, in the back area here with people going back and you're not seeing this, but I'm seeing they're trying to be very careful and quiet as they walk by us. But fortunately, these mics are good. And I've done literally interviews like this out on the street. So I know that most, if not all of this will be uh, drowned out. So that takes us to our final question, which is the de deserted island question. And I know you've listened to the podcast a few times, um, but the premise is you're stranded on a deserted island. You can only pick one album, ideally not a greatest hits. Which album would you pick and why? I would pick an album that I grew up with, and it takes me back to my very first musical memory. Uh, so again, I grew up in India, fortunately, in a very uh, musical household where music was constantly on. Uh, and there was this very old album by uh, the sitar maestro Ravi Shankar, uh, and the album is called Festival of India. Uh, and the reason why, it, it, even growing up, I used to be amazed by this album in terms of not just the sublime, how sublime and how amazing the music is, which I, if you haven't heard, uh, I'd highly encourage you to do it, uh, but also this whole idea of 16 musicians handpicked by Ravi Shankar, who then turn out to be the preeminent musicians of their age. And this whole, I remember growing up thinking about how did he pick these people? Because, you know, when I was listening to it growing up, they were already the maestros. Uh, and they were picked by this person when they were probably just novices or beginners. Uh, and it, it always used to amaze me. And now thinking back and putting all of the management theories on top of that, uh, it tells you the, the beauty of recruiting the right team and the power uh, of that. Uh, and, and, you know, of course, the music takes me back to my childhood days. Uh, so I absolutely love that album. And it also was one of the first albums uh, where, uh, which was exposed to the Western world as to the beauty of the Indian classical music. So again, a little bit of a courage because the music has been around for thousands of years. This was really the first attempt to actually showcase the music in a way, in a format that world would appreciate. So uh, again, you know, it was a first on many fronts uh, and I love that about that. And while I'm at this, I'm going to cheat a little bit and throw in- I'll let you cheat. Uh, uh, throw in a Western album uh, and one of my first English music sounds growing up in uh, India was Sting. Uh, and the album that is really uh, kind of apropos to this context of being stranded on an island uh, is uh, Soul Cages, uh, which is the whole album is around sailors and about sailing. Uh, and it's beautiful. Uh, and that, one of my favorites. That's, that's the other one that I would definitely take with me. I bet if we poked around, we could probably find out that Sting and Ravi Shankar probably met each other or maybe even performed together because they seem like they've operated in that same realm. Right? They did. In fact, Ravi Shankar's daughter, uh, Anushka, uh, she just recorded an album with one of his other daughters, Nora Jones, where Sting was the, uh, the guest artist. So, yeah.
Very cool. Well, anyway, this has been a pleasure. Um, so this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show here at JPM post Digital Brunch, which was a big success, sitting here with Chathan Perrick, uh, the Associate Brand Director and Innovation Portfolio Leader at PG Ventures. Thank you so much, Chathan. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Aaron. Pleasure's all mine. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.